This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. I'm Nicole Sheets. I teach in the English department here at Whitworth. Um, I would like to thank the Department of English for sponsoring this event, for the English Readings Endowment, uh, Tom Carraway, who is our readings coordinator, Carly Rasmussen, who is our program assistant. Um, just to let you know, we have a couple of uh, events on the horizon. Um, in a mere fortnight, there will be the diversity monologues. Those are Thursday, March 31st at 7 p.m. in the Robinson Teaching Theater. Uh, and then two weeks after that, on Thursday, April 14th, uh, we'll have the last endowed reading of the semester. That's Cornelius Eady, uh, pretty much a poetry superstar. So that'll also be 7 p.m. in the Robinson Teaching Theater. So if you have things to do on Thursday, you should just cancel them and do the, the things that we tell you to do. Um, <clears throat> Amy Leach is our featured reader tonight. She has published work in journals such as A Public Space, Tin House, Orion, The Los Angeles Review, and scores of others. She's been recognized with the Winning Writers Award. Uh, she's had several, multiple, I think, uh, Best American Essays selections. She's had one, but it's, it counts for, it, 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 it's a really important one. So it's like having multiple. I'm, <laughs> I'm like, don't make things up, but then I said, like, yeah. Uh, she's had a Ronan Jaffe Foundation Award and a Pushcart Prize. She plays bluegrass, which uh, I'm sure she would talk to you more about, especially if you buy a book in the back. Yeah. She would sign it for you and tell you about her music. Uh, she teaches English and lives in Montana. Her first book is an essay collection called Things That Are, and it is beautiful. When I assigned this book to the advanced writing workshop last spring, the students were enthusiastic and also a little unsure of how they should respond. Is this book some kind of bizarre field guide? Are these essays really more like poems wearing essay costumes? It was as though we were listening to some strange new music pumped out of a familiar radio. One student, okay, it was Kyler Lacey, uh, he said, quote, I just want to lie down and roll around in these essays, then wrap myself in them like a blanket. <laughs> and I knew what he meant. Amy Leach's book makes us feel very big and very small. We are big when compared to salmon or thistles, and small when compared to stars. Leech shows our earth to be full of obstreperous hippos, lizards with chiseled necklace frills, and beetles that look, quote, like watermelon seeds with very small rowing teams. When Amy Leach ponders the heavens, her thought experiments produce a pleasurable kind of vertigo. For example, to help us understand the relationship between the earth, the sun, and the moon, Leach gives the following instructions. Find two friends and have the self-conscious one with lots of atmosphere be the earth and the coercive one be the sun. And you be the moon if you are periodically luminous and sometimes unobservable and your inner life has petered out. Then find a large field and take three steps away from the earth and have the sun go a quarter mile away. Again and again, Amy Leach shows us not, uh, not only the remarkable variation among creatures, great and small, but she also emphasizes how very much we have in common. Take our underexplored kinship with pea plants and their waving tendrils. Leach tells us that, quote, desire for light spools grass out of the ground. Desire for visitors spools red ruffles out of twigs. Desire makes plants very brave so they can find what they desire. 
and very tender so they can feel what they find. The voice of these essays calls us to look around and to look up. After just a few notes, it is a voice we would recognize anywhere. Please join me in welcoming Amy Leach. Thank you so much for that joyful introduction. And thanks to um, Nicole and Tom for inviting me here. And thank you for coming tonight. Um, so I'm going to read a, kind of a hodgepodge um, from my hodgepodge of a book. And um, I will start with The Caterpillars. <clears throat> this essay is called, You Are Going to Fly. Can you hear me all right? Can you hear me okay? All right, okay. <laughs> this is called, You Are Going to Fly. Once a friend and I followed a moth that trudged across a whole grocery store parking lot. It was nighttime, not really a safe time for trudging moths. I said to it, moth, why don't you fly? Why are you wasting your wings? But my friend, who is much better than me at allowing winged things to walk, said that maybe it missed being a caterpillar. We decided this. It's a good thing that the caterpillar stage comes before the moth stage instead of the other way around. For moths, if they like, can take long, nostalgic walks across parking lots, while caterpillars could never indulge in long, nostalgic flights to Mexico. Caterpillar, you are going to fly, everyone says to caterpillars. You will be transformed. People think of them as proto-moths and proto-butterflies, and they're impatient for them to convert into their more extraordinary selves. This is understandable, of course, when that which is like a plotting lozenge turns into that which is like an angel. Everything that belongs to the lozenge's time seems mere preliminary. But think of the nervousness for the lozenge. What sort of disposition could bear the pressure of such a drastic and imminent exaltation? Caterpillars, nonetheless, remain calm, eating their tobacco and milkweed, enviably imperturbable in the face of a brilliant future. Yet they are perturbable, if not by the future, then by elements of the present, for they are little and flesh-soft, crushable, eatable, drownable, freezable. If you have spines like the hickory horned devil or intimidating tufts like the dagger moth, if you have antifreeze to keep their blood from turning to icy slush, but most do not, most can only inch away from danger, antifreeze and intimidating tufts notwithstanding. Any danger that cannot overtake a caterpillar is no danger at all, a trifle. Because they cannot run, for caterpillars have only six real legs, the rest are fake, mere stumps to keep their hind parts from dragging and getting scuffed. Caterpillars have to do other things when threatened, so some make themselves unpleasant. Black-etched prominent caterpillars send out two foul-smelling pink tentacles from their back end, and they wave them around. Monarch caterpillars are foul-tasting. Entomologists use that word foul often when referring to the favor, flavor of a caterpillar. They are rarely more specific than foul or tasty. <laughs> I expect that's because they're leaving the assessment up to birds and birds have a very binary approach. <laughs> Many caterpillars defend themselves not by striking fear in the hearts of their predators, but indifference. The large maple spanworm looks like a twig. The viceroy caterpillar looks like a bird dropping. That's not as exciting as looking as an anaconda, but when you're very small and wingless, one of your main goals in life is to not be exciting. 
Speaking of unexciting, I think it's safe to say that woolly bears have one of the least advanced defense mechanisms among insects, although theirs is the reaction with which I most strongly identify. When distressed, the woolly bear rolls up into a ball. I recently saw the last five minutes of a reality show where lots of women were vying for one man. The women behaving like witchetty grubs, frantically trying to bury each other in a bucket of bait. Or spiders stinging each other's heads, eating each other's legs. Not having seen the beginning, not knowing the premise of the show, I surmise that some amount of money must be in store for the winning woman. What other incentive could induce them to participate? Unless they were coerced. But it can't be legal, I thought to myself, to detain so many women and force them to act like insects. <laughs> However, when they showed one of the youngest ones filmed burbling after the big introduction banquet, I was nonplussed. Not a mercenary at all. She seemed genuinely hoping to fall in love. She said, the moment our eyes met, I knew there was something special between us. And I felt butterflies in my stomach like I haven't in so long. And she declared, I live for butterflies. I'm guessing that this sweet Mooney girl later regretted her announcement, which must have induced thousands of entomologists the world over to write her letters. Dear Tiffy, we do too. We live for butterflies too. Entomologists are notoriously excitable and notoriously ingenuous when it comes to reality shows. <laughs> but it is possible that a more guarded entomologist, maybe from the Ukraine, happened to walk into his teenager's room just as this particular interview was airing and directly posted a sensible letter the next morning to Dear Miss Brown, after witnessing your show on television last evening, during which you made the emotional statement regarding butterflies, I feel compelled to write to you and inquire. Aren't you aware that most butterflies, after they have acquired wings, only live for two weeks or less? That they spend months or even years as eggs and caterpillars and pupae? This is why you haven't felt that fluttery feeling in such a long time, Miss Brown. The life cycle of the butterfly is protracted. If you really do live for butterflies, as you say, and you provide your thoracic cavity as a butterfly garden, you must be patient and remember that you're living for their eggs as well, and for caterpillars, and for pupae, which can wait for years before they emerge as butterflies, to give you a few days of fluttery feeling, and then die or migrate. But with all due respect, Miss Brown, I suspect you don't live for butterflies at all, but for the fluttery feeling they offer. If this is the case, may I suggest that you let them out and fetch some Mexican jumping beans instead. <laughs> Regards, Dr. Osip Iwoskiwi. But in the end, whether people know how small a portion of time is given to the butterfly, how large a portion to the caterpillar, does not matter. For they can never infect the caterpillar with their anxious urges to become a small apple green caterpillar who climbs a toad flax plant, who somehow loses a foothold while walking across a stem to get to a leaf and slips and hangs on only by two crochet hook feet, the wind swinging it back and forth over the creek, is not thinking, alack, I shall fall into the icy water. I shall be swallowed by a fish. I will never now wrap myself in silk and wake up with powdery iridescent blue and green wings and fly away with them to fields of cornflower and mate and feed on the tears of wild buffalo. My life, my eating, my climbing, it has all been meaningless. Rather, it thinks, 
I'm swinging, I'm swinging, I'm swinging. Okay, the second piece um, is called Memorandum to the Animals. And it begins with um, a text from Genesis 6.19. And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. Unfortunately, animals, we're not going to be able to bring all of you with us this time. Last time, there were eight humans on board and at least two of each of you, but that was a sentimental era, and God was a sentimental fellow like the old pack rat up the road who won't give up any of his whim-whims. Bringing two of every sort of creature onto the ark meant bringing all 1,700 species of scorpions and all the blotchy toads and testy wasps and malevolent snakes and countless other creatures as unnecessary as insanity. This time around, we are in charge. We're producing our own cataclysm, designing our own boat, making our own guest list, which does not include every living thing. That first ancient boat we have retrospectively christened the fantasy. Today, we sail in a boat called reality. Realistically, logistically, it would be too complex to save, try and save every single kind of you multitudinous miscellaneous creatures. Dormitory assignments would be a nightmare because we don't know who might eat whom or who might die of social stress. We'd have to go nectar collecting beforehand for sustenance for the sugar boards, sugar birds, and gather angelica blossoms for the hoverflies. And if little blue poison frogs were going to maintain their poison, we'd have to bring along extra mites for them to ingest and special leaf litter for the mites to ingest. Anyway, we need the space for our works and wonders. Many of you are being superannuated because we must give priority to our machinery, our televisions and computers and refrigerators and cars and trucks and airplanes and combination microwave convection ovens with auto time zone adjusters. We will still bring a few of you with us, especially those of you with rumps and ribs. Please refer to the Keep Alive list. But we're not going to waste time hallooing for the bush babies, waiting for the mayflies to drift in and the kiwis to materialize. We're certainly not going to stand around until the tortoises figure out what's going on. If you're concerned about the devastation of your genetic type and you don't see your name on the Keep Alive list, you might think about clumping some vegetation together into rafts on which to rescue yourselves. You animals like slugs and bats who can't assemble your own rafts, or whose spindly legs like dromedaries and moose are liable to poke through a grassy vessel, or those of you who are graminivorous and oblivious like sheep and who would nibble through the rescue raft, please know that the extinction of your type is not necessarily the extinction of your glory. You can live on in the imagination, like the angels. Although, like the angels, you are likely to be simplified. To properly live on in the imagination, you should have someone who really knows you, who knows the pitch of your buzz, the rufous hue of your throat, your fondness for comfrey, who's watched two of you golden frogs separated by a loudly gushing stream, waving your hands and semaphore fashion. As the Holocene is winding down, don't be foolish like the Okapis 
who use their acute hearing to detect and avoid human beings. Okapis have sabotaged their chance to survive in anyone's mind. But even the most knowledgeable imaginer is a fallible vessel, like an iceberg, liable to get carried away, to melt, to be a bottom very, very blue. Don't you know, animals, nothing lasts forever. The Holocene was the age of miscellany, the age of pandemonium, the age of which Noah's Ark was a microcosm. Of 30 million passengers, only eight were human. It was a noisy, dirty, dangerous, eccentric, anarchic, inefficient, and rowdy ride. And the co-passengers knocked us over a lot, and sometimes we fell over laughing. But now we are proceeding into the age of efficiency, the age of sanity, the age of refinement. We salute you, animals, as we salute the unruly Holocene. But the future belongs to us. Okay, um, I am going to read a few entries from my glossary, and um, this was my editor's idea, who asked me to write some unusual definitions for some unusual words. <clears throat> Vasty, as differentiated from vast, has approximately the same meaning as biggie, hugey, and giganticy. <clears throat> Don't let anyone tell you those are not words. All words are words. <laughs> Smitheries and smelteries. First, the smelter smelts the iron from the ore, then sends it over to the smithy, who smiths it into an automobile. After that, the automobile is sent to the waxery, where it is waxed, and from there it goes to the rustery, where it rusts. Dr. Osip Iweskiwi, definitely somebody with the pedagogic itch. You have to be careful what you say around pedagogues unless you want everything from dog brains to Neanderthal religion explained to you. <coughs> the, <coughs> the, bless you. <laughs> the age of efficiency, the age of sanity, the age of refinement. Our inventions have long been ahead of us in terms of efficiency and sanity, productivity and predictability. Oh, how we wish we could be man-made too. What has been keeping us back, keeping us so messy? It's the animal impediment. Eliminating this impediment, we will surely be catching up with our machines, resembling them more and more impeccably. Luncheon ladies. As no samurai should ever go out without his topknot, no lady should ever go out without her zoopass. Who knows when she might be invi invited to a spontaneous luncheon at the zoo cafe to celebrate the acquisition of a Malaysian babirusa. <laughs> molecule trustees. The sun and all of us are molecule trustees. We only administer the molecules entrusted to us until they are passed on. Like an any trustee, we do not own the property, nor do we decide who will receive what we stewarded. It might be somebody grumpy like Xanthippe. <clears throat> the ingenious gentleman Don Quixote. Don Quixote read too much and he went mad, for literature magnifies the madness that is humanity. 
If you read too much and you exacerbate your humanity, even a moth will be able to discern your mutability. Reconstellate. What people generally do in response to the latest scientific findings, they rearrange themselves. Hedgehogs, though, are examples of non-reconstellators. They stand on their own four feet in the face of the headiest trends. Ladle. The long tail of the great bear is also the handle of the Big Dipper, which is an asterism. Asterisms are less distinguished than constellations. Asterisms are lower down in the hierarchy of starry patterns. Any goose can make up an asterism. Constellations are superior to asterisms, and asterisms are superior to asterisks. <laughs> Leguminous exoplanet. Leguminous means basically beanie. If we're going to posit alien beings, beings in outer space, then please let us posit alien beings for them to plant and eat. <laughs> the wild what? Anything unknown. For example, an unborn baby. One day she may be a wild spelunker or a wild Lutheran, but for now she's a wild what? Okay, um, I'm going to read an excerpt from <laughs> my essay about the moon called Sail on My Little Honeybee. And um, please forgive a little bit of repetition here. <laughs> <clears throat> Let us now reflect upon the moon, for the moon has long reflected upon us. To get an idea of the relationship between the earth and the moon and the sun, Find two friends and have the self-conscious one with lots of atmosphere be the earth and the coercive one be the sun. And you be the moon if you are periodically luminous and sometimes unobservable and your inner life has petered out. Then find a large field and take three steps from the earth and have the sun go a quarter mile away. For an idea of how long your light takes to reach the earth, sing one line from a song such as, Sail on my little honeybee, and that is how long moonlight takes. The earth can sing the same line back to you to represent earthlight. Ceylon, my little honeybee. As for the sun, he should sing as lustily as sunlight. Have him discharge the song, I gave her cakes and I gave her ale, which is eight minutes long, which is how long sunlight takes to reach the earth. Also, the earth may sing to the sun and the sun to the moon and the moon to the sun, songs of representative length. Now keep spinning and no, sorry, keep singing and everybody spin. And the smaller two of you orbit the next largest rotundity. Now, as you, the moon, go around the earth, don't circle perfectly as if you were a mill horse or an idea. You are not an idea. You make the earth's heavy blue waters heave up and down. Circle asymmetrically then like a small co-planet, for truly, you and the earth both orbit the center of your combined mass called the barycenter. Of course, if you and the Earth were equal in bulk, the barycenter would lie exactly between you, and you and the Earth would pass your lives in social equilibrium, like the rooster and the horse on the carousel. However, as the Earth is 81 times more massive than the Moon, the barycenter is 81 times closer to the Earth, thus the barycenter is inside the Earth, though not at its center, which means that the Earth orbits a point inside itself. The Earth is a self-revolver, nodding slightly to the swooping moon. 
No, the Earth does not look 81 times as massive as the moon. In fact, it's just four times as wide. To address this perceptual difficulty, we will interrupt our lunar reenactment and consult philosophy. Let us refer to our index of philosophies and select one known as interiorism, which says that truth is to be known by introspection. To discover why the Earth acts so central and the moon so obsequious, let us not measure yards, but consider inward differences. The Earth is not gigantic and the moon is not slight, but the Earth has a core and the moon does not. Or rather, if the moon has a core, it is undetectably small and inert, like a frozen mouse. How do we know that the moon has a mousy core? Whoever really has been a lunar interiorist. Here we shall have to invent a philosophy and call it imaginative exteriorism, wherein by looking at the exterior, we imagine the interior. For the face often tattles on the heart, and an empty surface may bespeak an empty center, although this is not true of alligator eggs. The moon has a stony face, while the Earth's face is a slap-happy burlesque, screaming flocks of peacocks here and cloudbursts there, and spriggy merriment everywhere. And such an exhibition is possible only if inside itself the Earth has a core whose nickel density enables the planet not only to sport a moon, but also to hold on to tiny, flighty molecules. For these bouncing, shimmying molecules are Earth's genius, and they are harder to keep than moons. Cloudland has a core of adamant. On behalf of those who feel vacant and uninhabited, to whom nothing occurs, who look up day and night from chalky dust into unrefracted blackness, who watch their plush, blue-headed neighbors yielding splashy gullies and snow devils and heady cauliflowers and rosy squirrelfish swarming through rapture reefs, on behalf of unprofitable individuals everywhere, is the moon ordained to always be a shabby waste of rubbled regolith? Could it never scrabble together a genius like the Earth's? What about molecule trustees, like the sun? The solar wind blasts the plasma of particles throughout the solar system. Couldn't some of these accrue upon the moon? For not all atoms wiggle away. Xenon, for example, is heavy and slow. It would make a nicely non-combustible atmosphere of glowing lavender hue. And it would make sound possible, although slow, so everyone's voice would drop several octaves. And everyone would sound like walruses. Xenon is also an anesthetic, so inhabitants will be blithe and amenable to dentistry. <laughs> but the wind that bringeth the elements taketh them away. The atmosphere on the moon is thinner than the thinnest vacuum we can contrive. Halos can't be affixed to the head with pins and clips. Forests hosting spine-tailed birds and gray-bellied comets and long-tailed weasels can't be administered from without. Glory can't be administered from without. Glory will only coalesce on a body wherein throbs a fiery, molten, mad stallion heart, so dreadfully dense, so inescapably attractive, that it matters little the circumference of the frame. Okay, um, and the last piece I'll read is um, a, just a little short one called Comfortless. <clears throat> My Aunt Stella's down comforter arrived from Texas, finally, but smelling scorched, leaking feathers. A little light bulb in the car door had burned a little hole in it. 
I have band-aided it up, but the feathers still escape because feathers went to fly. For 53 years, Stella had been fastidious with the comforter, folding it away every morning in its plastic zipper case when all it ever wanted was to get a little hole burnt in it. Goodbye, seam, say the feathers, we are going to float. When I'm through losing my Aunt Stella's exultant feathers, I am going to fill the antique rose-colored comforter with sand and double band-aid the hole. I will use clean, fine Jamaica sand. Sand will never float away and leave me bereft. Sand will be fun to sleep under. Sand will find the hole when the band-aids pull away one night and spill. I will wake up with handfuls of sand spilling out of my hands. Goodbye, seams. Goodbye, hands, cries the sand. I am going to spill. Unkind hole, I will cry. Obstinate comforter, letting all my feathers out, letting all my sand out. How can I depend on you? Must I ever be tending to you, my difficult comforter, ever filling you with something new which only ends up floating away or spilling? Must I live with no certainty, no continuity, I will call you comfortless. In my exasperation, I will run to the store and I will buy chocolate mints and I will stuff my comforter with mints. If you're going to have a hole, I will tell it as I resolutely stuff it full, I will turn you into a chocolate mint dispenser. When you release your contents as you're always doing, I will get a treat. <laughs> it will be a cunning plan inspired by sheep who also eat their bedding. But it will not be quite cunning enough for chocolate mints, unlike grass, melt, and do not hesitate to coat a warm sleeping person with goo. <laughs> I will wake up as chocolate mint person. I will stumble to the door, unhappily attracting sand and feathers on the way. <laughs> I will stand on the lawn. I will look up at the stars and bleat, stars, I'm having trouble with my comforter. You are so serene. How can I be serene like you? They will look at each other knowingly, for they have answered this question millions of times. And then they will twinkle back to me. Person, you will never be like a star. Things for you will always float away and spill and melt. The closest thing to serenity for you is laughing. I will recognize this as true. I will stand there, just another sandy, feathery, chocolate mint person laughing on the lawn. Thank you.